and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders and proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker. Well, welcome everyone to Hope for Healthcare podcast. Um, today, I have a special guest with us, Dr. Paul Lachant. And many of you know him if you've been following the podcast. He was interviewed last spring and talked about his own consulting work and, and what he's doing in healthcare to really make a difference. And um, today we're gonna talk about some updates and also the upcoming healthcare burnout symposium. Really quick, just a reminder, Dr. Deshant is an internationally recognized expert on clinician burnout. He speaks from the unique combined experience as a family physician, a medical group CEO, and consultant to C-level leaders on reducing burnout while building the bottom line. While CEO of the Sutter Gold Medical Foundation, it achieved the highest rating of 170 medical groups in California in two years in a row and improved provider satisfaction from a score of 45 to 87 in the AMGA Provider Satisfaction Survey. He co-authored Preventing Physician Burnout, Curing the Chaos, and Returning Joy to the Practice of Medicine, and again is, is co-chairing the upcoming National Healthcare Burnout Symposium in LA in a week. So welcome, Paul. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Always a pleasure, Katie. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I know we have an upcoming health conf healthcare conference dedicated to resolving healthcare burnout <clears throat> and in, in promoting engagement and professional fulfillment. Can you talk a little bit about what you're looking forward to and some of the highlights? Well, there's I don't think there's any lowlights. It's going to be a <laughs> conference. You know, the, and with starting with the pre-conference workshops, of which one you are running. Um, all of that whole day is really full of great uh, uh, issues and concepts there, um, which will be really uh, awesome. Um, we've got a, an array for the, um, and that, that day is Thursday, the 23rd of February. Um, on the 24th and 25th, we've got the regular conference, uh, which will feature many keynotes as well as some breakout sessions. And we've got, um, you know, real luminaries like Javier Bracera, the um, HHS secretary, is going to be speaking. The California um, uh, Surgeon General is going to be speaking. We've got uh, luminaries like Chris, Dr. Christina Maslock, who I really developed the Maslock Burnout Inventory, has been a, a seminal researcher in burnout, leader in the field over the last 40 years um, with a new book out. So that's going to be very interesting to hear what she has to say. Um, we've got uh, regular, dedicated uh, physician leaders in the world of burnout people like Dr. Steve Swenson, Christina Sinsky, um, and uh, Heather Farley and others. So it's just gonna be a, a really um, wonderful conference. We bring in a couple of other non-specific healthcare people who talk about some of the real cultural and personal issues around uh, personal resilience challenges and burnout as well. So yeah, it's, it's gonna be very good. And it's in LA in the beautiful Lushkin Center on the UCLA campus. Uh, you really can't go wrong as a place to be in February. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And for all of you listening, if you can't attend, um, there will be links and ways for you to um, attend online or, or sign up to receive the presentation. So we'll make that available to you. All right, 
<laughs> uh, well, Paul, I know, you know, the last time we spoke, you really helped our audience dive deep into the six drivers of burnout and how you are actually impacting burnout on the front line, working with C-level leadership around the country, doing your consulting work now. Would you mind just giving us some updates on what you're experiencing in terms of progress? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. So a couple of things. Uh, there's two clients we've worked with that have really had, we've had some interesting learning and um, demonstrable changes with. Um, one of them is a, a thousand provider group in the Northeast um, that we tried to start doing, uh, really uh, fixing the workplace through the traditional lean value stream approach of, you know, looking at the entire visit of a patient from start to end. Uh, what we found was when we tried to do that deep dive, they did not have the personnel resources to do that and keep the operations going. Everybody is so short staffed these days that that was such a challenge. So we pivoted to launching huddles. And we may have talked last time about the huddle process and how it works and how a huddle constructed well actually does address all those drivers of burnout. But what's been fascinating is we did a subsequent follow-up. Um, when we launched that work, we had used the AMGA Provider Satisfaction Survey to get their baseline. And then we did a follow-up uh, just recently. And they improved, there's eight different dimensions that are measured in provider satisfaction, different aspects about the organization and how providers feel about it. All of those improved on an absolute number basis. Um, interestingly, about two so about a half of them improved on a percentile basis because every organization keeps moving on the percentiles. So some um, actually, you know, also were improving on the real number basis. Maybe we, maybe on a percentile basis, it wasn't as much of an improvement. But the striking thing was, even though our main focus was not on uh, burnout itself, uh, it was on fixing workflows and changing the workplace, their improvement was greatest on the burnout dimension. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. In fact, they moved up um, from about the, I think it was, it was at the 10th percentile or below to the 62nd percentile in one year um, without a deep focus on, uh, in, you know, supporting personal resilience as much as just giving physicians the opportunity to become engaged mm. in what's working and what's not working in their workplace. What ideas did they have to help make that better and how do they at the start of each day get together with their team look at the day and and prepare for it what's their capacity uh, compared to what the demand is that's coming at them that day almost everybody never has as much capacity as they need for the demand but then they can develop a contingency plan so they can be ready to manage it throughout the course of the day they identify little things that go wrong each day bring them back to the huddle the next day to talk about and decide as a team, are we going to work on fixing this thing? And if so, who's going to work on it and come back to us with a solution um, and then communicate up to their leadership, those things that they've identified, but they can't solve and at their own level, they really need more support in order to be able to do that. So that's been uh, really something that when I think about, you know, how to approach leadership and management in health systems, uh, particularly working as physicians, you know, I always say as a family physician myself, I wanted the empowerment to fix things that I thought were wrong in my practice. When I became CEO, the thought of 300 doctors all independently coming up with autonomous solutions to their problems scared me that we'd fall apart from chaos mm -hmm. and um, entropy. And this process gave people that empowerment 
to address the things that were most most present to them. Um, and you know, many of those are little tiny problems. They seem like little tiny problems. We call them pebbles in your shoe. But man, there's a lot of pebbles in everybody's shoes these days. And the more we can take them out sequentially, the easier it is uh, to keep uh, moving through your day. So that's been, it's been really um, uh, pleasantly surprising uh, and heartening to see that happen. And it's such an, it, it takes thoughtful process to implement huddles. You can't just go say, okay, everybody huddle. I mean, you have to learn how to do it well, but when you, but it's not that hard if people are willing to step back and do that learning. Yeah, I, I had a question to, to go a little bit deeper into that concept of how you train the leadership to take the feedback during huddles and how that is communicated up the chain if it can't be solved at the middle layer of leadership. Can you talk a little more about how you educate um, leadership on, on that system? Yeah, oh, that's an interesting question. It's really, um, in many ways, it's a mindset thing, you know, and I think it does tie into this whole issue of, are, you know, are we going to approach leadership or management from top down command and control, or are we going to approach it from empowering and aligning people? Because the temptation when things feel like they're in chaos is to go into top down command and control. But when you do that as a leader, you end up making yourself responsible for every improvement. And if things fail, you end up theoretically making yourself responsible for those failures. And yet you don't have that level of control. Uh, whereas if you approach it more from a from an empower and alignment standpoint, then you've laid, you know, people understand part of the, the alignment part is crucial. You know, what are we actually working towards? How do we measure that with different metrics we're doing uh, that are pertinent to the front line? And then how do we empower people? So if they identify a problem, they can own developing the solution. They can own implementing that. And then if they're not able, you know, if they do need additional resource or, or somebody to break down a barrier, that's where the leader comes in and supports the frontline people in their empowerment rather than feeling responsible personally that, you know, it, instead of herding cats, um, <laughs> I like, to, you know, I haven't used this analogy in a while, but it's a great one. Instead of herding cats, which everybody, you know, we've all heard that analogy for leadership, particularly in medical groups. Um, I don't know if you remember a few years, ago, many years ago now, there was a cool uh, Super Bowl ad with a, uh, uh, some cowboys trying to run a herd of cats across the plains. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, but, uh, but instead of herding cats, I think of it as getting eagles to fly in formation because we're all very powerful people. You know, we're as knowledge workers, we bring amazing skills and strengths. And yet, you know, eagles don't tend to fly in formation. They're not geese. Geese fly in formation. Um, eagles generally are more independent. But if you can get these amazingly powerful beings to then work together, uh, that's when uh, amazing opportunities develop. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that, Paul. And I love that you focused on the workflow aspect of the healthcare system. And by doing that, that addressed the 80%, you know, cause of burnout is due to system factors and workflow. So that in itself helped to reduce burnout. And then you also helped teach the, you know, my sense is probably during those huddles is that everyone was getting a little bit of leadership training on a daily basis because they were, they were getting some ideas of, oh, there is a solution to this problem. And not only is there a solution, it can be implemented in the next month or so. And then once that gets fixed, 
I now have hope as a doctor or nurse that this is actually going to change. And the hope kind of yeah. is, I think, what pivots empowerment. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, so so on that idea of how how you know what's the leadership um, process in those huddles? Generally, because it's a lot of this work has been on outpatient clinics, and and the, the, there's analogous work that can happen in any inpatient setting. But in the outpatient clinics, there's a manager of the clinic, and there's usually a physician lead of the clinic as well. Mm-hmm. And we deeply train the managers at first to be the ones who run the huddles. Ultimately, everybody understands them and anybody could. But that management role of understanding that manager's responsibility is to empower everybody in their unit to do well um, and work with the leader, physician leader, then developing dyad, dyad leadership positions at every level. So in that clinic, the physician leader and the manager um, become a dyad. They work together to lead, problem solve together. So. It's not as though we're solving a problem for the desk, but the physicians aren't involved in it, or we're solving a problem for the physicians and medical assistants aren't involved in it. Uh, we need to have everyone, it's it's a team sport, so we need the team together. Um, but by having that dyad leadership, physicians have significant, uh, really powerful input into decision-making, but they don't have to sacrifice very much of their clinical time in order to have that input. The managers can really carry the water in terms of making, you know, doing the, the deployment of the management change while getting the input from their partner, the dyad physician. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really, I'm really glad that you explained that, Paul. It makes a lot of sense to me. And it sounds like, well, I'm curious to see how are the leaders of your healthcare system looking at this data over the past year and realizing how the daily huddle shifted uh, burnout for them. Yeah, so they were very, they, you know, we were all nervous waiting to see the results came in. So we were pretty excited okay. when we saw them come in. The other thing the leaders have done is they've now engaged. So there are actually four levels of huddles. There's the frontline huddle, but that's followed by a, a huddle in that's regional for that, um, for that department, that clinical department. Uh, there's two regions in this health system. So they have a, an east and a west region that huddle. Then they have the, um, the the clinical department huddle. That's the third level. And then there's a, a huddle of the senior leadership of the medical group, uh-huh. where all the, all the senior leaders, uh, all the department mm-hmm. leaders, the department chairs and the department um, VPs, uh, those they come together as uh, and work with the CEO and the COO. So they're looking globally. And, you know, every health system now is very focused as they should be on performance metrics, you know, metrics around quality, safety, patient experience, finance, and the experience of the workers. And um, and that most systems struggle to really achieve their targets on those. But when we build this in, in such a way that uh, we understand what the system goals are, and we then understand what, what are the goals we should have at the front lines in order to help those system goals uh, be achieved. And building that consciously and, and help, helping educate everyone at each level of those huddles, mm-hmm. what their particular metric is, it's gonna feed from the frontline to the system metric, is, has given them a sense of control and understanding that they didn't have before. So instead of waiting three months, six months or a year, exactly. to see the outcome, because it takes that long for that particular high level metric 
to really be measurable. Um, what they're, you know, they're using driver metrics at the front line. So if the issue is financial performance and we need to increase revenues, people aren't, you know, they're not measuring uh, collections at the front line. They're measuring something like empty slots in the schedule. How can we just fill a few more empty slots? And if you can fill, you know, if you fill one more empty slot a day, and that increases productivity by 5%. And think about that 5% potential on, a, on an organization that's, you know, generating somewhere between one and $3 billion a year. It's huge. And, and you know, and it's the work that happens at the front line in small ways that turns into big opportunities for a large organization when it's all organized that way. I see. Um, that was an interesting statistic. So for every patient, for an extra patient slot per day, that adds to 5% productivity for the health system. If, you know, it, it varies office by office um, there and, and service by service. But if you figure on an average, you know, a clinician seeing 20 patients a day, um, you add one, that's 5%. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, you know, and oftentimes, you know, the, the schedule may be set up so there's 24 encounters a day or something, you know, or more, some, somewhere around in there. People mm -hmm. are anywhere, depending on, you know, so many patients are getting so complex. A lot of people are down to even seeing 16 or 18 a day, depending on mm -hmm. what's going on. But quite often you may fill the schedule, but then you have three or four no-shows. And so what you're really seeing is, you know, 90, 80 or 90% of what the capacity is. Mm -hmm. And so wherever baseline you're at, one patient a day often has some impact between 3% and 10% on the productivity. And that's not so, if, you know, if I come, if I were to come to you as a doctor and say, okay, Katie, you need to, you know, you need to up it. We're going to have you see 10% more patients. Um, that's what your goal is this year. You're going to go, are you crazy? I'm not going to be able to see three or 400 more patients. You know, that's, there's no way. But if you say one patient a day that we can squeeze into empty, you know, slots that our people aren't showing up in, that's that's definitely more doable. Now, if somebody's already going home at night and working two hours trying to get their charts caught up and spending a few hours on the weekend, that can still sound like a lot. So there, it's not simply adding that. There's other work we do to remove wasteful workflows to you know make things streamlined. Um, but the but it's not that it's not nearly as intimidating as it seems when we understand what we're trying to achieve at an organization level and we truly uh, interpret it as to what the impact is at that frontline level. And I'm just going back to the huddle thing again, Paul. <clears throat> you mentioned that there's four different levels of huddles at the healthcare system you're consulting mm -hmm. with. And are they all meeting every day to huddle or are the higher levels meeting like once a week? What's the strategy behind that? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. My ideal would be to have every, every meeting happening every day. Um, in reality, particularly if people are learning to do this, um, that takes time to free up schedules. And particularly like in a complex system like this one, they're doing this in the, in the, in the medical group, but they're not doing it in the hospitals yet. So mm -hmm. there can be conflicting meetings for the, for the senior leaders of the medical group that they're getting pulled into system meetings where they don't have the time to then have their daily huddle meeting. Um, but those daily huddles, those, those level four, the top level huddles that they're having, they're more like a one and a half. They started at two hours. They're down now to an hour and a half. They're right. looking more broadly. It's not the 15 minute quick in and out. Mm -hmm. um, that's another model to do it. And I've seen that work very successfully.
but that's not what that's not what this team is doing. And what they're doing is far better than what they had before. Yeah. And at some point they might say, you know what, we do need to, you know, we could even do better by meeting more frequently, but we're okay. Um, and at the d- division or the, yeah, the department level, um, you know, they have, I think, 10, maybe 10 clinical departments. Those are meeting once a week as well. But those regional divisions are usually meeting, I think, two or three times a week. Frontlines are meeting daily. Um, and, and it evolves, you know, when we started, we've, we've in this particular organization had so much pull that they ended up going from one, you know, zero huddles to a year later, well, a year and year and 15 months later, doing, having 95 frontline huddles happening across the organization. Um, so that's, you know, that's dramatic growth and particularly doing it in a way where everyone is still staying true to the original approach to it realizing the benefits of it um it is it is um it's it's a lot to get that to happen mm-hmm. um but they've they've done it methodically and they've really worked with us well to make sure that 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 we're staying true to it well that's that's really great news and i know this health system is really dedicated to well-being for their healthcare workforce so i've heard other um good stories along the way with this healthcare system so mm-hmm. Um, are there any other updates that you're working on, Paul, that you want to share with our audience? You know, something that it is. So we've worked also with five independent safety net hospitals in New York City through a grant funded program that focused on connecting senior leaders with the frontline clinicians uh, called the Transforming Clinician Leadership Relationships, uh, TLC Relationships. <laughs> it's kind of okay. cute. Um, <laughs> But so this was the lighter touch. Um, you know, my partner and I worked in there. We at least once a month we were touching each of the five hospitals. Um, we had um, we had in-person meetings at the start of the program. Uh, we went and did site visits a couple months later. Uh, we had another in-person meeting a few months after that, and then we just did a wrap-up in-person meeting last month. Um, in between, we did everything virtually. And, um, and we, you know, there were a lot of the, there were a lot of pluses and minuses as we're all learning these days to this hybrid model of in-person and virtual, um, the interventions that we pursued were one teaching, uh, leaders about wellness orientation. And we used, uh, Dr. Tate Chanafelt's, uh, um, wellness centered leadership article as, uh, as the, essentially the, um, the curriculum. Uh, so we went through it relatively steadily and slowly. We didn't want to overwhelm people. Um, they're all busy. They got a lot to do, but they, I, they all really appreciated that found value in it. Um, we, we also actually brought in a guest speaker, Dr. Patty Gabo, who had, uh, was the CEO at Denver health, another safety net hospital yes. and led a transformation there. Um, the other things we did, we, we developed CEO clinician councils where the CEO would actually sit down in a room with some frontline clinicians and hear directly from them, what their concerns were. And those, it's something that the, you know, leaders at the, particularly at the sea level, rarely get the opportunity to hear directly from people at the front lines. And, um, and it's so valuable when you can hear that because then you know what, you know, you at least get some sense of what the major concerns are and can start to take specific action. And quite often as a CEO, you're aware of resources that people in the front lines or even middle management may not be aware of, and you can help get things moving more effectively that way. Uh, that really turned out to be very powerful. Uh, and then lastly, we helped other uh, some of the other systems that, that we were working with there uh, work on having their senior leaders shadow clinicians while they're working. And these are even people who were chief medical, you know, 
people who are clinicians, who are doctors, who'd worked in that system for decades, but they'd gotten away from direct patient care over the last few years. And uh, particularly with the way that things changed through COVID, when they then went back into the clinical sites, um, had things they learned that they realized were major challenges. Um, you know, particularly all these hospitals work there, the communities they work in are incredibly resource constrained. These are safety nets in New York City and, you know, in the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens. And um, they, they um, didn't have the same support that many of the other health systems did. Um, and they realized that the, some of the expectations they were trying to put on their clinicians were unreasonable because you could get a patient tuned up and ready to go out the door. But if there was nobody to receive that patient on the other end, no family, no social services, um, you couldn't just kick that patient out. Um, and, you know, or maybe there was no way for that patient to get up a five story walk up um, that they needed to do until they figured out something. So just the realization of all the barriers that exist in this complex world we've got were key. When we, we did the Maslach Burnett Inventory and Area Work-Life Survey at the start and end of that engagement with all these hospitals and with their frontline clinicians, um, what we found was they made some improvement, um, but not universal. And we, you know, in really for two reasons um, that I see. One is it was a pretty light touch that we did. You know, we really weren't in person that much. Um, so, and, and it was challenging to get these new initiatives started. We really had like a nine month time window. It wasn't a full year. Getting something new started, getting it hardwired, making it happen regularly um, with all the crazy demands they had on them was very difficult. Um, you know, this was the time when they went through the triple-demic. Uh, this is the time one of them actually had a cyber attack that severely constrained their challenge, their, their issues. Um, so they, you know, these were really uh, tough times they went through. And in addition, throughout the course of this last year, we've seen increasing challenges with staff shortages. So even if you, you know, it's, it's not a matter of just relationships. If you just don't have people, um, then things are overwhelming. Financially, they were very challenged. One of them was tr trying to really give raises to their frontline clinicians and just getting it through the bureaucracy was a challenge. Um, and then violence, you know, increasing incivility and violence that's impacting every aspect of our healthcare systems these days is felt at another level entirely in these safety net situations. Mm -hmm. So with all of that going on, even good work didn't necessarily show a dramatic improvement in the, in the burnout score. Um, although there were, it was actually um, on a micro level, we could see that. The places that started with a little higher level of engagement and really committed to it, we did see improvement in those places. The places that didn't have the infrastructure in place to start with and struggled more to get started, um, those ones we didn't see as much improvement in. Um, and it just speaks to the whole issue of, you know, you've got the, the better off you are, the more foundational cultural uh, and operational aspects you've got that are strong to start with, your improvement efforts will improve even more dramatically. But if you're, you know, but none of all of them said they wanted to continue this work. They all found great value in it. None of them said, well, this is great. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> see you later. We don't want to do it. You know, important. Yeah. yeah. You know, Paul, what I'm, you know, the kind of theme today with you really is, you know, commit, commitment, number one, and number two, keep it going, keep the momentum going and, you know, start small. 
And even if you're starting with one medical group or one area in the healthcare system, you can start there and then expand as you get your flow in your system down or you find out what's working for your healthcare system. Right. Um, so it's a process and change takes time because we're talking about a culture and a system change. Absolutely. And, and I think the other thing that sometimes happens is people feel like, well, okay, you know, if you're the CEO, then yeah, you can have some control, but I'm just here on the front lines or I'm a middle manager and I'm just overwhelmed. Um, it's there's, when you think about what drives burnout and particularly what drives the manifestations, you know, we know work overload drives the exhaustion, but those other, there's five drivers that drive the cynicism. It's the lack of control, insufficient rewards, breakdown of community, absence of fairness and conflicting values. By understanding those and thinking about how you as an individual work, even within your little work unit, um, you know, you have a leadership role. Those same five drivers that impact cynicism will have a positive impact if you address them properly. If you lead a team of two or three people, if it's just you as a clinician with a couple of support staff, you can make a difference within that, that realm. Um, and I've seen that as well, where, you know, even within an organization I was leading, um, different sites had very different levels of engagement based upon how that that leader in that organization, whether it's a formal or informal leader, chose to engage with their people. And while they may not have formally thought through these five drivers of cynicism and burnout, mm -hmm. um, they were actually uh, working in a way and living in a way that honored all of those. That's really interesting. Yeah, I was. It's, I mean, you know, one of the, at Sutter Gould where I was CEO. One of the um, sites was the oldest site. It was actually had been shoehorned into an old nursing home. I mean, you couldn't have had a worse design for an outpatient clinic. And, and, and they were getting a new building built. But prior to the new building being built, their manager was just this warm hearted, loving person who made every single person feel valued. And they had some of the best scores of anywhere because they, she had created this culture that everybody wanted to be a part of. You know, that's, that's important. And I think psychological safety and sense of belonging on a team really set the stage for creating trust and then having feeling then feeling empowered that change is possible and can happen. Um, I know from my own experience being a leader, um, that psychological safety and trust is one of the, the foundational elements. Um, and the first thing I work on when when taking over a new team and leading. So, yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting because it sounds very soft, you know, mm -hmm. it sounds like it's like the, and, and it's a part of being a humble or servant leader is that is creating that safety. Um, and that term often is a challenging term, particularly for people who feel like they've got an urgent need to lead, you know, Oh, wait, am I supposed to be a servant leader? How do I do? Well, the, the leadership part, too often people hear humble or servant leader and they think about the first word, not the second word. And yes, you know, being humble or being a servant means listening to your people, creating that safety for them, like you described, and helping them, um, you know, feel like they're part of a group. But too often people forget the other word, which is equally, if not more important, which is leadership. You know, why are we all coming together? What's our goal? What are we working towards? Mm -hmm. And how do we see, how do we understand each of our roles as we support each other in that process? That's the leadership part. And being humble or servant won't get you anywhere without the leadership part. And, and, if, you, and if you think leadership is top-down and control management, 
then you're going to struggle. You'll get somewhere, but it's going to be a painful struggle. Whereas when you take that approach of, you know, supportive leadership, um, then it's, you get farther and you have a much more positive experience getting there. Mm-hmm. Well said, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, on that note, is there anything else that you want to add about the healthcare system that you've been working with? Uh, no, I'm just, I'm so impressed with the engagement of the leaders in both of these uh, clients that we've been working with. It's been great. Um, and I know I see, you know, there's so many opportunities out there, um, particularly, you know, from a standpoint of uh, meeting the needs of a health system, as well as meeting the needs of the clinicians. You know, like, like you mentioned at the start, I like to think of it, this as beating burnout and building the bottom line. Yeah. Um, I was talking to another system this week where they said, yeah, you know, I think we've done everything we can to squeeze efficiency out. And yet our leadership keeps coming back and says, we need 5% more. And then I started talking to them and this was a, a very procedurally oriented specialty. They work out of, out of procedure rooms and their turnover time in those procedure rooms can be anywhere from a half hour to an hour and 15 minutes. And they haven't done work on reducing that turnover time. But if they can do eight or nine cases in the course of a 10 or 12 hour day, they can reduce that turnover time by half. They can do two or three more cases. And the clinicians, doctors will be happier because they're going to do more of what they love to do. Procedures love to do procedures. That's where we find value when we do procedures. Uh, We don't find value in sitting around waiting for the room to turn over. You know, when somebody is show up with the the transport person bringing the patient and somebody coming in with a mop to clean the floor, you know, that stuff, it's like, that just drives you crazy. But if we could, you know, and it's not that hard to fix turnover time. I actually started my career as an OR orderly, where what I did was I turned over rooms and I transported patients to the OR. And so, you know, I know it. I mean, I've lived it. We can do that. That's not that hard. But you lose sight when you, it's like you're swimming in the water. You don't see what the, that the water's got a problem. Um, there's that, there's so many opportunities when you, somebody from the outside just takes a little bit of look in and, and it helps people think through on their own uh, what the opportunities are. So there's so many opportunities, even when we feel like there's nothing else we can do, if we really get some outside perspective, step back and take a look at it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Paul. And, you know, we really appreciate you being here today and, Letting, you know, this discussion I find to be very inspiring and again, hopeful, which is why I called my podcast Hope for Healthcare, because, you know, you, you inspired me in the beginning. You were one of my inspirations for the podcast because there's a lot of good work happening out there. And I think if we can start focusing on, on what are organizations doing to improve employee engagement and productivity and profitability like what are they doing what's working well if we can start really focusing on that and applying those standards nationwide i think we would be in and we'll be in a better position in the next five years and that's my hope absolutely yeah. and yeah i think you're playing such an important role because people are so challenged and many people are demoralized yeah. and um and and hope for healthcare is giving us hope so <laughs> it's giving Go me ahead. hope all this yeah. is why i keep doing it every week well, and you exude that positivity, which is really important. People lose, they may give it short shrift, but it's absolutely vital. So I appreciate yeah. that deeply. And just to point out, it is not toxic positivity. It is is genuine positivity because <laughs> we are both recovering physicians from burnout. We've been on the other side and, yeah. you know, we've been there and, and I'm still on the front line and dealing with what's happening now in healthcare too. So I do see the pain and the suffering every day. And as a leader, I feel that 
it is our job to really rise above the negativity and the toxicity and really focus, start focusing on some solutions and honing in our leadership skills as physicians and getting leadership coaching and training and, and really advocating. It's really a call to action, Paul. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we're going to end and I'm looking forward to seeing you, Paul, in a, in a week at, in LA at the burnout symposium. And, um, everyone will have all this information listed for you. Um, Paul brought up some great articles on wellness-centered leadership and the Mazak Burnout Inventory, and I'll provide that in the links as well. Great. Right. Have a great rest of your day, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Katie.